This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 626, and we welcome back Dr. Lisa Brosseau and a new guest this week, Dr. Tom Peters from the University of Iowa. We're going to talk about the new uh, documents up on the web from the ACGIH task force and going back to work and school during pandemics. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at restorationindustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at iicrc.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com, Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com, TSI Inc. at tsi.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Donald Weeks, Ottawa, Canada who was first to identify 7.3 kilocalories as the energy potential released from one ATP molecule. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, May 14th, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. Here is today's IAQ radio trivia question. What is thought to be the first incidence of coronavirus in the United States? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, so our first guest, Dr. Brosseau, is now retired. She was a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health from 2015 to 2018, where she was the director of the Illinois Education and Research Center which supported graduate and continuing education for occupational health and safety professionals and community outreach activities. She is the chair of the ACGIH Pandemic Response Task Force. Dr. Tom Peters is a professor at the University of Iowa Department of Occupational and Environmental Health and a member of the ACGIH Board of Directors. He's an engineer trained in aerosol physics, who applies his efforts to the study of human health as it relates to particulate exposures, and he is the board liaison to the task force. Welcome, 
Dr. Peters and Dr. Brasso. Let's uh, start with you, Dr. Peters. You're new to our audience, so maybe you could uh, give us a little background. Uh, what's, uh, what's your position at the university there, and uh, how did you get involved with the indoor air quality and disaster well, the uh, indoor air quality world, I guess, and, and uh, ventilation issues, et cetera? Sure. So I've been a professor at the University of Iowa since 2004. And being a professor means you've got uh, teaching, research, and service duties. So for teaching, I teach a course called aerosol technology each fall. And in that class, we talk about how statistics and chemistry and physics relate to the behavior of aerosols from where they're created, like a source, to where, what their fate is, such as the respiratory system. So uh, students around campus take that class. We have pharmacists that do drug delivery. We have uh, chemists studying nanomaterial synthesis, environmental engineers predicting air pollution episodes um, around the world, like even Asian megacities. And then uh, we also have industrial hygienists who protect the public and workers. I also uh, teach a course. I'm sorry, go ahead. I also teach a course in the control of occupational contaminants. And so we take a deep dive into ventilation and how to control contaminants in the, in the workplace. We also touch on indoor air quality there, but uh, it's primarily taken by industrial hygiene students. And then um, I, my research involves aerosols, uh, these particles, how they move around. And um, I also do uh, service. My, my big service responsibility at the moment is serving on the board of ACGIH. And then I also uh, uh, maintain accreditation for our uh, industrial hygiene program for ABET. So that keeps me busy. For COVID, I got pulled in um, Dr. Renee Anthony is leading COVID, uh, our industrial hygiene COVID efforts, and she pulled me in to help with uh, a lot of the ventilation, uh, ventilation work. We're going to ask you much more about that a little later. What are are, are you back to full time in person classes, or is it still a mix? So we are a mix, and from we range from 100% in class to. 100% um, online. We've got, it, it really largely depends on the class that's being taught. And so for my aerosol class, for instance, we have a lot of laboratories. And so we were in person last fall and we were able to, um, to make that work because we have, it's, it's not so many students, about 10 students in a, a big classroom. I see. And are all the, do you know if they're going to require vaccinations at the school or if that's being thought about? So we are following um, guidelines that are set out, national and state guidelines. And right now there is no mandate for, um, no, there, there is no mandate for uh, a vaccine. So 
we are not requiring it, but it's strongly urged to get a vaccine. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's move on to uh, the website here. And John, if you could pull it up, I want to ask Dr. Brosseau a few questions. Um, and we're going to kind of walk through it, talk a little bit about it. Most groups now seem to be on board with uh, how this disease is transmitted. And right up front here, you've got a statement that, uh, Lisa, maybe you could uh, kind of point out to us this key statement right up front with numbers one, two, and three. Sure. Um, this comes from the very recent change uh, and from CDC in their science brief and the How COVID-19 Spreads websites, where they finally recognized um, after much more than a year of, um, of science, scientists asking them to recognize that there are, is now, in addition to droplet deposition or propulsion into the mouth, nose, and eye, um, and in addition to contact or touch or fomite transmission, we now have inhalation of um, particles and both droplets, larger particles, as well as smaller particles. They, they have a hard time understanding the difference, I think, because normally we wouldn't call these aerosol particles, but that's okay. They, they, did, they did the right thing. And I think these are actually in the right order now um, in terms of their priority, although CDC has yet to make any significant changes to its guidelines, especially for workplaces um, in, ter in terms of recognizing inhalation. And inhalation of very fine respiratory droplets and aerosols, that's been moved up to number one on your list and, and CDC is also looking at that. It's, I'm wondering, I don't think we know for sure, but how much of the, how many of the infections occur through these three different mechanisms? So do we have any idea or would you like to venture a guess based on your experience? Um, my, based on my understanding of aerosols and my understanding of exposures to hazardous aerosols, I would, my, I would guess that a large proportion of it is due to inhalation. Uh, deposition, and, and droplet propulsion, uh, it, it's, it does happen, of course, if you're very close to someone and facing them when they sneeze or cough or talk directly into your face. But I can't imagine that that is, counts for very much transmission, given what, the, what we've seen in terms of outbreaks and super spreading events that they occur at uh, you know, distances in, in shared spaces. And I know that... Um, I think it's at least a couple months now that CDC downgraded its uh, its thoughts uh, and recommendations with respect to fomite transmission, saying that it occurred very infrequently. And I would agree with them, although I don't rule it out. And I, whenever I talk about the pandemic, I say we shouldn't rule out any mode of transmission that involves respiratory fluids, um, but we should be focused on inhalation. Okay, that's what I thought you were going to say. And then, Dr. Peters, um, I'd like to follow up with you. Do you have any follow up to that? I mean, you're an aerosol guy. I mean, you, you know, you're working around the colleges. Um, what are your, what's your gut tell you as far as how much of this is through, you know, uh, through inhalation of fine particles versus the other types of uh, exposure? Yeah, um, uh, we don't know the percentages. We've just gotten to the point where we are willing to ad admit this could be a, an issue. So I think that it's the inhalation route is very important. 
it's it's critical based on um, many of these, uh, as Lisa said, the super spreader events um, have likely occurred th that way. And until recently, uh, this route has really been ignored uh, in favor of splashes and sprays of large droplets. And I think that it's this acceptance of this inhalation uh, as a as a as a key route is a game changer for how to prevent exposures, and uh, and that's a lot of the um, the work that we did was was along those efforts. And Dr. Brousseau, um, can you tell us a little bit about why ACGH developed these guidelines and and how they want people how you expect people to use them? Well, I am not entirely sure I know why, because that would be a good question for the board. But I do know that they called me up and asked me if I would be willing to head up the team in late 2020. I think it's probably because, I mean, my guess would be we weren't seeing the kind of guidance about aerosol inhalation that we really needed to see. Um, and industrial hygienists were struggling. Uh, you know, so many scientists over the last year have published um, calls, international calls for recognizing this mode of transmission um, to WHO, to CDC around the world. And they've been, the public health agencies have been very, very slow to recognize it. And it's, it puts, it's put workers in particular at significant risk because, uh, you know, physical distancing, um, plexiglass barriers, some of uh, face coverings, and that's what the fact sheets that we developed demonstrate, really don't um, prevent transmission of aerosol inhalation. So they may help a little, but not nearly as much as you would like. That's right. The, the, okay. Their role is, is minor, and especially because workers are in contact with each other and maybe the public or patients um, for you know many hours and what we know is that exposure, uh, it, it, it's the length of time as well as the concentration that matters in exposure to a hazardous aerosol, including an infectious aerosol. And that's a key point that I, it keeps getting overlooked and I'm glad that we're going to talk a lot about that today. Uh, John, can you pull up the site? Let's take a look. And by the way, folks, this site just went live, I believe yesterday and already, uh, They've been making some really nice changes to it, and I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but uh, I believe both of you are open to suggestions for how it could be better. Absolutely. And in particular, if there are resources we should add, you'll, um, you'll see those on another page. We would, I would really you feel free to email me directly or anyone at ACGIH and let us know what you think we should be adding as a resource. And, and we're going to go through these in the order that you recommend people, you know, review them and starting with aerosol inhalation and working our way down to control banding, ventilation. Uh, John, can you scroll down a little more there? Respirator, surgical masks and face coverings and then health and safety programs. So let's go back to the inhalation. And let's pull up that graphic right there. And maybe we can have Dr. Brosseau talk to us a little bit about this one. Sure. So anyone has heard me give a webinar or a talk about um, aerosol inhalation uh, has seen me use some figures 
that were actually published on the University of Minnesota SIDRAP website a number of years ago. And we've um, uh, used them over, I use them over and over again to illustrate what happens in a, in a closed space once somebody exhales uh, respiratory droplets and, and small particles and that those, uh, you know, the somebody nearby certainly is at, is at risk of exposure early on, but that eventually, and that's the second um, figure is supposed to be demonstrate. Now, the, uh, keep, go back. Yeah. The second figure on the right is yeah. illustrating that you're going to get deposition um, or gravitational settling, some of those smaller particles, but you're going to get distribution usually primarily due to diffusion, but also air, air movements of the smaller particles throughout the space. And so it's trying to illustrate that this is how we need to think about aerosol inhalation and who can be exposed. And it's that, that that's why this distancing feature doesn't um, really play as big a role over time as we expect it to. Uh, another key um, thing that another key sort of tagline that shows up in a few of these, these um, uh, fact sheets is that anyone can be a source or anyone can be a receiver. And we, this source pathway receiver model or mode of thinking about the hierarchy of controls and the transmission is um, also a common theme that runs through the, through the fact sheets. And I found it's easier to explain to people um, thinking about the hierarchy of controls in this context. And the big problem of course, is that we're not used to people being sources of any kind of hazardous um, you know, material or contaminant. We think of them as mostly the receivers, the people we're trying to protect. But now we have to think about them as the, the source of the infectious organism. And um, the last part of this fact sheet just illustrates the sort of key risk factors which most of which everybody is aware of, except for the one that isn't emphasized as much as it should be that I already mentioned, that time, the more time you're exposed, the greater your chance of inhaling an infectious dose. This does a nice job to lay it out real simply, but then if people want to go into more detail, go back up to the top of this section here, John. You've got links to the printable PDF, the additional resources and references, and a list of the full, I go to the second one down, John, the additional resources and references. So here's a list of the resources and references that you put together for aerosol inhalation. Would you yes. like to comment on that at all? Um, sure. So, you know, and this is not by any means exhaustive. There are, have been any number of articles talking about the importance of aerosol inhalation. So I just selected a few of them. The key one um, that I will call attention to is the one that uh, Dr. Rachel Jones and I wrote number five about aerosol transmission of infectious diseases, which um, uh, sets, this, sets the stage in terms of al uh, identifying the criteria that you could use to, uh, to um, evaluate any organism and its ability to be aerosol transmissible. It, it um, lays out those criteria and offers you know, levels of evidence such that uh, you could decide, yes, this organism has the, has the possibility of high or low of being aerosol transmissible. Um, so it's applicable to many organisms, not just SARS-CoV-2. John, let's go back to the graphics from this section real quick. I got one more follow-up. So in the risk factors down below a little bit more, one of them is um, 
many people, more infected people can lead to higher particle counts. But I'm not seeing, and I'm wondering if there's a reason for that is that to someone who has a full-blown infection and is you know in the hospital, are they more contagious than the 20-year-old kid that you know has has COVID but doesn't have any symptoms? So that's a great question, Joe. Actually, um, the course, the virus kinetics or the course of infection is quite different from SAR, the original SARS, SARS-CoV. Um, we are most infectious just before and as symptoms start and about eight to 10 days after. And when serious illness develops, which is usually beyond that eight to 10 day period, we are actually least infectious. We are still, there's still a lot of shedding of, of viral RNA, but most of that is not culturable or viable. Um, and it has been shown, I believe, it, you know, not as much data are available for people who are asymptomatic, but they, their shedding of viable virus appears to be similar to those who are symptomatic. In other words, that it occurs, uh, you know, two to five days after you're infected uh, and extends for about 15 days, but you're very infectious for just a short period of time, uh, a peak around the time where you might be symptomatic but you aren't if you're asymptomatic. So everyone has that potential for being infectious and getting more, be, getting more severe disease really doesn't have anything to do with how infectious you are. And being severe disease is really just related to host factors, meaning age or comorbidities for this organism. So, you know, we usually think of the, you know, the, the dose um, that someone got as maybe changing how how bad the the resulting health issue would be. In this case, it doesn't seem that way. No, dose is a different sort of thing for infectious organisms. And that is a that's a hard thing to um, explain. It's more of a Poisson distribution, a random um, process, and is usually described by an exponential, uh, um, you know, an exponential curve. But um, when we talk about infectious dose, what we're usually referring to is the dose, like in a median infectious dose, is the dose that causes um, infection. And infection is simply replication, at, you know, uh, productive replication of the organism in, in a host, not disease. Um, and it's, so it's usually described as the you know, media infection dose would be the dose that causes infection and 50% of those exposed or has a 50% probability of, of uh, causing a productive infection. So it is a little bit different than the way we think about, um, you know, chemical contaminants, for example, with time-weighted averages. And I want to make sure, Dr. Peters, is there anything you'd like to add with respect to that first, uh, first section of the website here? inhalation? Um, I can add a little anecdote, I suppose. We, um, I had a call from the Des Moines uh, Gazette, and they wanted to talk to me about whether it was okay to have dining people in the winter outside, uh, but they were going to put them in igloos. So it was not, not snow igloos, but it was the uh, like kind of a, a plastic um, frame that you would put people inside. 
And so, you know, you just go down the list. You got an enclosed space, you got poor ventilation. And so, you know, thinking about your, your environment that you've got and go through this list helps a lot to, to think about things, I think. Okay. John, let's go to the second one. I believe that's going to be the control banding. And we talked in, in great detail about control banding on our past, last show with uh, Dr. Brosseau, but uh, I would like to cover it again here real quick. And let's go and see if we can blow that up a little more, John. That's, that's good. All right. So, uh, Dr. Brosseau, you want to talk a little bit about this first graphic here under the control banding equal exposure level times hours per day. Sure. And I will tell you that this has been a little simplified in terms of the controls showing up in this in this uh, figure. If you go back to the papers, you'll see that we actually have a, another step. Um, but the step uh, I was finally convinced by the team wasn't needed and was confusing. This is a risk group three organism. Many pandemic organisms will be risk group three, meaning that they have serious health outcomes and no treatments or, or interventions. And um, so it was not necessary to focus on the toxicity of the organism as much as how do you get to the, the control band. And so control, again, this is related to exposure is concentration and time. How, how many people, how, how many, when, what are the numbers of contacts is, is, uh, is a way of taking into account concentration. And then time is how many hours per day is a, is a worker exposed to those sources. And the less, the lower the exposure, the, the um, you know, you're closer to A and the higher the exposure, the longer the exposure, the closer you are to C. And if you go down to the next one, that just shows you, and again, we're using that source pathway receiver model. Um, what you do in terms of source pathway and receiver controls for the different bands. And the reason for this, and I think I emphasized this as well in our previous show, is that we really want people to focus on the hierarchy of controls. So if you're in control band A, you should not be using any receiver controls, which are basically respiratory, you know, PPE or respiratory protection. Um, but as you move up in the band to the, the higher risk categories, it may be necessary or prudent to add uh, receiver controls and personal protective equipment to the mix. And of course, we did add that little caveat that there are times when making decisions about this that you should certainly ask a health and safety professional or a particular industrial hygienist who understands control banding and, and the kinds of controls that work for aerosols. And then finally at the bottom is a list of the typical things that you, just examples that you might consider in terms of the different types of controls and a definition of those. Interesting. Very interesting. And you used an example, if I recall, on, a, on the last show of a bus driver. I did. Yes, that's Maybe right. Run us through that again real quick, just to kind of help tie it together to an example. Sure. And we are planning to put scenarios up on, uh, you know, some typical examples of scenarios that will illustrate how to use this. But if you go back up to the top, a bus driver has, uh, you know, you can't really know who's exposed, who's, who's a source and who's not. So you would uh, probably put them in either numerous contacts with potential sources. You know, that's where I would likely put them is in that exposure level. And they work for, you know, six hours a day on or more on the bus. So they're in that control band C. 
And if you go down, of course, control band C tells you you have to do lots of source controls and even some pathway controls, and you might be prudent to use receiver controls. And um, the examples might be for source controls, well, can you limit the number of people on the bus? So, which you can, and I know that was done. Um, in China, I think they even had, uh, you know, um, temperature screening and other ways of, of controlling who got on the bus. I, I don't think we ever did that sort of thing in the United States. Um, but can you, um, and, and you know, can you redesign the bus so you have distancing? Uh, it isn't really going to work just to use source controls. So you have to use pathway controls. The problem with bus ventilation, from what I understand, is the ventilate the flow air is flows from the back to the front. So that puts the driver at the greatest risk. And so what you might wanna do is enclose that drivers and give them a separately ventilated space. But if they have to come out of that space at any point and help say someone get on or off the bus, they may need to wear a respirator at that point, not, and not a face covering or a surgical mask. So. An actual respirator, like an N95 respirator. Yes, fit tested. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Um, let's go to the next one, John. Can no. I also point out, Joe, um, on each of the fact sheets, so if you want to click on one of the fact sheets just to show the PDF. So if you share that PDF with somebody, um, which I encourage people to do, you'll see there's a QR code on the right-hand side, and yeah, that's, yeah. that's on all of them. And that lets you, if somebody uses that, scans that, it goes straight to the ACHH website. So, right. you know, it makes clear that there are lots of other fact sheets you should be looking at. Very good. Okay, John, let's go to the next one. Oh, we're close to halftime. Let's introduce this one. Then we're going to thank yeah. our sponsors and we'll finish it up. Go ahead. Ventilation for aerosol transmissible pathogens. I'm just going to introduce this. I think Tom was um, uh, took the lead on this team and um, I'm gonna let him talk about it. But we've heard a lot about uh, uh, what you do with building ventilation systems, what we call here above the ceiling. And uh, we wanted to focus on what we should be doing below the ceiling. So, Tom? Yeah, so mostly these systems are, are developed in a, with the idea of comfort and general air quality in mind. So we don't really think about trying to control uh, particulate matter um, or you know, very specific particulate matter like um, viruses. So there's a lot of things that can be done. We call it above the ceiling. So you can, the above the ceiling is all the mechanical systems to move air up and uh, through the space. And so there's a lot of things that can be done, but we've uh, noticed that there's not a lot of talk about what can be done below the ceiling. So, and, and below the ceiling, there's air flows are particularly important. Where does the air enter? Where does the air exit the room? And are there, uh, is there a potential for short circuiting and dead zones? And so we feel that's, that's um, that hasn't been really touched on very much. So we wanted to focus on that. And could you move down a little bit? Go down a little, John, thank you. Yeah, so uh, 
basically, what is the exposure? Anyone can be a source of these infectious particles. Particles follow these air currents. And so this is that notion that aerosol, uh, these very fine particles are moving around, they're staying in the air and they're being, uh, they're moved by air currents. And particle concentrations can increase over time. So we have uh, that same idea of uh, time is coming in again as in being important and exposure may result from the transport of particles from an infectious person uh, to an uninfected uh, person. And then finally, what does a proper supply exhaust look like? And so basically you wanna try and avoid those short circuits and avoid dead zones by properly placing your uh, intakes and outtakes in the, the room. All right, so this is not going to be easy to do inexpensively, changing from the left to the right, although hospital operating rooms are similar to the right there, if I understand it correctly. And that is a great way to get you know, clean air into that room on a regular basis. Do you have any suggestions that are, you know, less than reconfiguring your supply and return? Yeah, so that's a challenging one. Uh, there's, here at Iowa, we've, the, the uh, facilities and maintenance group has been heavily engaged with industrial hygiene professors. And they've, we, they have done a good job of actively assessing ventilation systems for classrooms. But most of the work has focused on this above the ceiling and uh, following ASHRAE guidelines. But I, I think that we really need to, not only um, is it changing things to avoid short-circuiting, but it's also, identifying where short-circuiting is happening. And so getting people uh, the tools such as a smoke generator or something like that in order to visualize, properly visualize the, uh, the air patterns. So I think that you're right, it's time-consuming work and it's hard to implement. But I think that these things have a lot of uh, payoff potentially. Well, and I so basically there's um, the, the idea is that this is a first page of the ventilation. And so we'll have more uh, pages of ventilation uh, to come. And so how to do those things economically would be a good one. You brought up a really something I hadn't thought about, but and, and that is trying to get the facilities folks to focus on below the below the ceiling. I, I don't remember the exact terminology, and try and figure out where those dead spots are. Because I mean, there are some simple things I would think you can do, like adding some air purifiers in those areas. But is that something that that you would think of that you would suggest? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so there's another uh, future page to talk about air purifiers in rooms. Okay. Right. All right. So go ahead, Dr. Brazil. 
Um, yeah, I agree with Tom. I think there's a lot of potential for for thinking about what we should be doing under the ceiling. And since you know there's short-term solutions like uh, deploying these HEPA-filtered portable air cleaners, but there might be longer-term solutions, which mean reconfiguring or rethinking how we um, place the inlets and outlets and what na- what's the nature of those inlets and outlets. As you noticed from the fact sheet, they're, design- they're meant to actually enhance mixing. Um, the inlet is, de- it is, is designed as a sort of a diffuser to ensure that there's mixing in the space. And then you know, the outlet is to ensure there is removal, but it's not always placed in a way that you get uh, removal co- uh, consistently from all space, all areas in the room. But maybe we need to rethink that. Um, we, you know, if we're going to start giving more attention, not just to comfort, thermal comfort, CO2, we need to be thinking about particulates. And I, I think, and I'm hopeful that there will be more research in that area in the, in the coming years. And there's uh, a couple of good comments on this. And I, I'd like to point listeners, the audience back to the show we did with Jonathan Hale, who was, uh, I don't remember his exact position there, but he's, I think it was the chair of the ventilation committee. And uh, we did a great show with him and going through some of these potential you know, fixes to um, the fact that, that that mixing, that intentional mixing is kind of the opposite of what we want when we're dealing with this type of situation. Would you agree there, Dr. Peters? Um, so say that one more time. The- well, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to intentionally creating mixing so that the temperature and the relative, relative humidity are more uniform throughout the room. And that's kind of the opposite of what you want to do when you're trying to control something like a virus. Uh, well, th- here, I, I think I disagree on that. I think that okay. we do want to have that good mixing so that we don't have the dead spots. I see. Yeah. I we, see. we have to combine all these, out, all these uh, purposes together. That, that's the complicated part. And someone said mixing also reduces concentration, so it can be beneficial. Good. All right. It can, but it can, al- it can also create, I mean, if it's a dead zone, mixing can just be enhanced in that area. So <laughs> the Guangzhou restaurant is a really good example. It's short circuiting and concentration buildup. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be learned. We, we've never really focused on um, dilution or general ventilation as industrial hygienists because we're so focused on, you know, hazardous contaminants from industrial processes. So there's one chapter in the ventilation manual on dilution ventilation. It's pretty good, but um, I hope there will be more and I hope they will expand that chapter in the future. And another comment is maybe to use more displacement ventilation, which I know John Hale talked about on that show as being, you know, Right. And low and slow. I'll never yep. forget that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what works in, in some hospital settings is displacement ventilation. Yeah. All right. Hey, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. I'm a little behind on that. We'll be back in 90 seconds to finish up our interview with uh, Dr. Tom Peters and Dr. Lisa Brusso. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH, 
Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. And uh, John, let's jump right into it, get to that section on respirators, surgical masks, and face coverings, and have Dr. Brosseau go ahead and talk to us a little bit about these. Uh, Going to hit that workers need respirators, I think, too. There we go. Okay. Unless I, I might have messed up there, Lisa, let me know. No, no, that's fine. Um, so <laughs> this is a topic I've been talking about throughout the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been labeled as an anti-masker by any number of people, which I am not. What I am is uh, we should be careful when we think about the uh, use of masks. They are not magical. Um, there's been a lot of magical thinking during the pandemic. Oh, and so what we tried to, what I've been trying to do is think about how to talk, how to present these, this information in a way that everyone can understand. And instead of talking about fit factors or assigned protection factors, which industrial hygienists understand, but most everyone else doesn't, um, I, I decided to focus on inward leakage and outward leakage. And inward leakage is what we think of as fit, meaning how well does the thing you put on your face prevent particles leaking inward and being inhaled. Um, but outward leakage is something we actually have not ever given a whole lot of thought to. And, um, and it has been the purpose of surgical masks for many years is to prevent out outward leakage of large droplets from the person wearing them. That was their original purpose in surgeries. Um, but now we're talking about everybody wearing a face covering uh, to prevent 
the emission of particles, but, um, and they do a fairly good job of, of stopping very large droplets generated, especially during coughing and sneezing, although you do get some emission through the filter because the filters are not perfect, but you get a lot of emission of small particles through the filters of face coverings as well as around the, um, the, the, the edges. And so they don't really, because they don't fit and we do know a lot about fit. So um, what I wanted, what I also decided, if you go down just a little bit, um, I decided to start thinking about, keep going to the table and we can come back. Um, the table actually illustrates the, something I've been uh, focused on called time to infectious dose. And now we don't know the infectious dose, but I've been, I decided, well, let's just think about 15 minutes close, up close and personal, no, very, little, very little ventilation as being the infectious dose time. And if you, you can simply adjust that time by the uh, inward or outward leakage of the thing somebody's wearing, whether the source is wearing it or the receiver is wearing it. And uh, you can see that wearing a cloth face covering, a typical one gives you another five minutes. If both of them are wearing it, it you might get up to about 30 minutes. But um, even with a surgical mask, which have the slightly better um, filters, not much better fit, you get um, at most, most an hour. So the, uh, the illustration was meant sh to show here that it really only, it's only when you move to a respirator that you begin to get both good source control and good um, receiver control, personal protection. Then the reason I have the 10 and the one is, um, the 10 is the assigned protection factor for half face piece respirator, but the 1% is what we expect when you fit test one of those on people. So I wanted to illustrate the range, but it, it's really, that's when you start to get the hours that you need to protect a worker. So now you go back up and we just tried to illustrate what happens with these different um, inward and outward leakage and what do we recommend? So respirator of course is for workers, especially those who have, um, you know, long-term exposure to infectious particles. And in fact, you need better, respir res better respirators with higher protection factors when you have high particle concentrations. With surgical mask, uh, as I said, poor filters, a lot of inward and outward leakage um, in, in really the only place that you should be using those in healthcare, in my opinion, is for patients. And a cloth face covering is appropriate, I think, to ask the public to wear although it would be nice if they had better filters and fit better, but um, they shouldn't count on them to uh, prevent uh, you know, their exposure or anyone else's exposure if you're in that space for a long period of time or up close and personal for a long time. I appreciate that explanation because I, you know, I, we talked offline and you know, my nephew was telling me how you didn't believe in, you know, mask. And I said, no, I don't think you understand what she was saying. You know, it's not that they don't work at all. It's just that you can't get a false sense of security because you're wearing a mask. It's not going to, you know, you still have to do all the other things that are recommended. Is that kind of accurate to summarize what you're saying? Yes, they certainly should not be counted on. So, you know, when I talk to journalists, which I've done all through the pandemic, I've said to them, Let's just say to people that they should wear their face covering, especially if it's required, which it is in my jurisdiction, but please don't count on it. Don't, don't expect it to, to solve, to, to protect you for very long. I've got two great text questions from uh, the audience. One is, 
How do they feel about the CDC announcement yesterday that masks and social distancing are no longer needed indoors? Would one of you like to comment on that? That's for vaccinated people, I think. For vaccinated, thank you. Very good, very important. I mean, Uh, they still strongly recommend it for unvaccinated people. Well, the one question I've been getting a lot as uh, from that is uh, the problem with uh, workers. And many workers are actually not vaccinated. So um, I keep reminding people that this is still an important problem for worker exposure and that we should not, um, we should, I mean, again, face coverings aren't anything to count on. Workers should have respirators. If you are, if you haven't done all those other things, or even if you have and they don't prevent or limit somebody's exposure. But again, we need to be focusing on source controls and pathway controls. The face coverings aren't magical. Um, Over time, they aren't going to really protect you as a worker or the people around you. Um, And certainly workers shouldn't be wearing face coverings. That's not a a good um, method of control. I think that amount of time thing kind of opened my eyes a little bit. I think that's a great chart to have in there. Yeah. Um, Joe, I do want to say one thing, though. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, I I also felt sort of shocked, (laughs) to be honest, by CDC's sudden change in in policy. They apparently um, did not talk to anyone. They did not warn anyone, didn't talk to any scientists, didn't talk to any, anybody or ask them what they thought about suddenly changing the, this guidance. The, you know, Minnesota has been doing pretty well in vaccination and we've been slowly working towards reopening, changing guidelines slowly. And the governor had been talking about changing the, the guidelines for face coverings in June or July. So we were getting ready for it. But you know, CDC just did this thing overnight, shocked everybody, put everybody uh, in sort of a quandary as to what are we supposed to be doing? How is this? And, and the one thing about face coverings, I will say, is it reminds people there's a pandemic. And as much as yeah. we and we don't have a lot of other reminders going on, we've got a lot of people who really are behaving as if the pandemic is done. So uh, as much as I don't count on them, I sort of count on them in some way that I I was a little <laughs> shocked by that, my, by my reaction, I have to admit. So uh, I wasn't expecting that. That's great. Um, <laughs> hey, there's another follow up and I've got to do it kind of quick so we can get through the rest. Sorry. Um, it was the 15 minute. I wonder where does the 15 minute rule come from? I see that used in public health, but is there any scientific basis for it? No, it's just one of those rules. They have a lot of rules in, in public health and in, in infectious disease. I don't know where it comes from. Great answer. Hey, it's better to say I don't know than try and make something up. Let's go to the next one, John. All right, let's talk about this one, some of the programs, clear communication and training. Um, tell listeners a little bit about why this is the way it is. Um, you know, the team looked at all of the, the um, current guidelines out there uh, there are state guidelines now and state um, standards, uh, Michigan, Virginia, Oregon, and California, of course, has had its aerosol transmissible disease standard for many years. Um, so, and, and, you know, these are not that different from any health and safety program guide, guidance. These are the same sorts of things that you would expect to see in any written program guidance. But these are the things they found to be the most common with respect to these infectious disease um, standards. Then we're still hopeful that there is gonna be an OSHA 
emergency temporary standard sooner than later. It is still needed. There are still a lot of workplaces where there are exposures and work and workers need to be in, in contact with each other and the public. So, um, and the, the key of course, and the, if you think about the hierarchy of controls, we talk about training as an administrative control and, and communication, but what we realized in thinking about that is that communication and training are actually really key all throughout a program, but at all the steps. So we decided to put those on the outside, sort of illustrating that they're a piece of everything from engagement to assessment, to control, to review. I guess similar to, you know, I don't know whether you thought about this, but if you, if you did the same thing on the face mask respirator section saying, hey, these things come first, then we can look at this. But I think that's a great idea the way you did that right here. Um, Dr. Peters, at the university, um, I'm wondering, you know, with all your time spent um, with the ACGIH board and being the liaison to the task force, any changes in your thinking uh, with respect to how things are being handled at the university? Well, I, I was involved with measuring um, air changes per hour in different classrooms. And I do think that that's important, but not critically, uh, not the only thing. So I think trying to do some of these other measurements in the, the room where we're trying to get the airflow moving, um, you know, in the right directions, I think are, are very important. And I think that that's work that hasn't been done, but should more, more of that type of work should be done. Okay. Hey, John, let's go to the roundup. Cliff, I, I apologize. I know you would text me if you had a specific question, but I want to make sure you get a chance to chime in here and ask a question or make a comment. Okay. Um, I'd like to ask a question uh, to both Lisa and, and Dr. Peters. And if you want to answer it, you can. And if you don't want to, uh, you don't have to. Uh, in, in retrospect, knowing what we know now, do you think that um, kids should have been in school uh, much, much earlier than, than now? Hmm. Hard question to answer. You know, the, the problem with thinking about schools, and I keep reminding people, is that they're workplaces. Mm -hmm. And the whole focus on children, I know children are not thought to be trans as transmissible, but there is transmission that can occur from children to adults and from adults to adults in schools. Um, so, you know, I do think that it is possible to make schools safe, but I think we have to be thoughtful about those. It just, just, and the same sorts of controls need to be considered in the context of schools with the understanding that children are not entirely also at, not at risk. I mean, they are at risk, some of them considerable risk, uh, depending on if they have comorbidities, for example. So, um, I don't know the answer to your question about in retrospect, should we have just left all the schools open? I don't think that would have been a good idea without also putting in place a lot of good thoughtful controls, which would have included better ventilation, for example. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, 
you know, making changes to ventilation can, can be a little time consuming as well. Uh, Dr. Peters, do you want to take a stab at that one? Sure. So my wife is a kindergarten teacher and she's spent a lot of time doing both instruction. And uh, I think that it would be better to try and open the schools earlier in retrospect, but that's because we know a lot about how things are spread now. Um, and I, I think that the one thing that would need to change is that everything was left to the school to try and figure out. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to, for individual schools to do that. So some, some more guidance on what are good controls in these very general you know, classroom situations would have helped a lot. And if that had been there, I think that I'd recommend opening schools earlier in retrospect. All right, let's go to see if the Restoration Industry Global Watchdog has a final thought or two. Pete, we've got three minutes to go. That's going to be tough for you. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, you know, first of all, terrific show. We got 45 people called in. That We haven't had that in quite a while. Normally, we're in the 20s to 30s. Yep. But anyway, great job, guys, on everything. I The one thing I guess I have my comment on, and there were some comments in the in the chat log on this, you know, Lisa, when you made the comment that, you know, people were thinking that you were kind of an anti-mask person, but you're not. We did a show with a retired lady who's a, a, from a group that she curated a bunch of stuff on an item called Mass Facts. And it was kind of controversial. But the show wound up being a really good show. And I think she clarified that, you know, she, people thought that she wasn't against masks. She wasn't against masks. She was really against, you know, how the masks are perceived, how they're used, and what the advice comes from the government. It always appeared to me, if we, if we stay out of the politics and some of the comments that Dr. Fauci made early on and a lot of the things that went, it, it, you know, as an industrial hygienist and a lot of that are on here, you know, there's certain, your trade and your profession is to ensure, you know, the proper when respirator protection is used and what other engineering controls in the workplace. So now you have the government telling the entire nation and the world for that matter, well, let's just go throw some masks on. And it was never enough information as a citizen, I'm talking now, on how, how, do, you, how do you select them? Uh, which is the right one? Uh, what are the rules? Uh, what's the difference between a face covering and a mask and an N95 and this and that and everything? And people were generally confused because they didn't get advice on how to select it, when to use it, what's the good side, the bad side, everything else. It, it, that just made common sense to me as a citizen taking out any knowledge I have of being in the restoration industry for years, working with industrial hygienists and all these organizations. I'm not an expert as you guys are, but I have more knowledge than just the general person. And that just seemed confusing to me. And now on top of that, you make the comment about the CDC, it takes people back. Look, I lived in California for many years. Certain segments of the population wore uh, face coverings out there and no one ever said anything about it. A lot of times they did it because of the smog. <laughs> just the smog was bad. <laughs> you know? And now it's this whole big thing. So I'm glad you brought that up, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Because sometimes we just need a little bit more common sense, I think, in how we address things and what the government advised the citizens. Because the citizens have gotten confused. And uh, it's affected and hurt all of us. So that's all I have to say. I enjoyed the show. I enjoy your you know, logical, common sense way of looking at things. I have always appreciated that working with the ACJ and the AH people over the years. 
I know a lot of them have been involved, me and Cliff and myself, you know, we've been a bridge to the restoration industry. And I, I always appreciate the input of the industrial hygienists, the canons, your code of ethics, how you look at the world. I told restorers all the times, go visit the website if you're gonna deal with an industrial hygienist and look at what their canons say. When you did the joint one, ACGH and AIH many years, it was a consumer-based one. It would be helpful to anyone who wants to deal with industrial hygienists to go to the websites and to go check that out. Then you'll know how you think, how you look at the world. Be very helpful, collaborate, you can work a lot better together. So my three minutes are up, Joe. That's what the watchdog had to say this week. And uh, of course, if, uh, if, uh, if, if the two good doctors on want to make a comment, I certainly think you should give them the opportunity before you sign off. Thank uh, you. I'll we turn go. it back to you. Thank you, Pete. I agree. And uh, Dr. Brousseau, Brousseau uh, final thoughts, comments, anything we missed that you'd like to add? I just want to say that I would like to thank the team. And um, John has put up the, the list of people. The individual names of the people who participated on each of the teams is shown below as well. But uh, each of these people gave a lot of their time during, you know, a very busy pandemic, especially for industrial hygienists. And I really, really appreciate all their time, their effort in reviewing in commenting and in adding information and in suggesting resources. It was a great team and I hope they'll continue to help as we develop some more fact sheets in the future. Fantastic. And thank you to ACGIH as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't forget them, huh? Dr. Tom Peters, final thoughts. Anything we missed? Anything you'd like to add? Well, thanks to Lisa for uh, working ri ridiculously hard to get these <laughs> things done uh, in retirement. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Tom. Thank you so much. Hey, I, I like this final comment. Dr. Brazo and Peters, you are heroes, along with all your colleagues who repeatedly tried to get this right. Um, I want to thank you both for joining us this week. I want to let listeners know that next week we've got another great show, Moisture Mob Show, John Lapoteer and John Hall. We're going to talk about roofing leaks and roofing issues and insurance and roofing, and uh, it's going to be a great show, a follow-up to the Moisture Mob series. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests. Thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. To John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal audience and sponsors. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 